Welcome to Control the Controllables. I'm Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis Academy in Spain, and we've teamed up with Max Tennis Academy in Ireland. We've brought this podcast together to entertain, educate, and energize the tennis community through the different lenses of the sport that we love. From Grand Slam champions to those at grassroots level, from sports journalists to backroom staff, Our aim is truly to get under the bonnet of the tennis world at all levels. So sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 150 of Control the Controllables. And isn't that strange to say, 150 episodes, how how quickly that has gone by. And we do have a special guest for you today. But before that, a big welcome to any new listeners to the podcast and a big welcome back to so many of you loyal listeners who have been with us over the last 18 months of this fun journey with Control the Controllables. And if the podcast has inspired you over the last 18 months, the 150 episodes that we have brought to you in in any way, I say this without any expectation, but please do consider making a donation of support and thank you by buying us a coffee. This will assist with the time and costs involved in bringing each episode to you as we continue to improve and grow the podcast, and you'll find those links in the show notes. But now for the real reason that we're here, this this amazing episode, this amazing guest, and a story that will inspire and stir up emotion in us all. People with mental health, they have gone through mental health, people that commit suicide, suicide rates, even suicide rates during a pandemic like we're going through right now where a lot of people are struggling. It gives people hope that I had those types of thoughts where am I going to hurt myself? Am I going to hurt someone else? Um, And I got out of those thoughts and was able to not only get out of those thoughts, but get back in and play at a fairly high level back at the US Open where all of that came to a head. And um, and I wanted to share that success story with people because I didn't have one when I was going through it. And that is Marty Fish. Some of us will know him as world number seven on the ATP tour. Some of you will know him as the Davis Cup captain. But I think globally, outside of the sport of tennis, many of you will know him for his amazing Netflix documentary, Untold breaking point where he lays his story bare you know from growing up playing tennis with his great mate and foe Andy Roddick all the way through to his mental health battles and how he managed to overcome them to return back to the professional tennis game. He's spoken very openly on his Netflix show about his mental health struggles And we get this amazing opportunity to deep dive into that, into his story, what makes him tick. So anyone that's watched the Netflix show, you're going to find out even more from this episode. And anyone that hasn't watched it, then after this episode, I'm sure you're going to go and want to watch the Netflix show afterwards. It's a great honor, a great privilege for us to have Marty on Control the Controllables and I know you guys are going to absolutely love it. So sit back and enjoy Marty Fish. So Marty Fish, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? 
I'm doing great, man. It's good to be uh, good to be on the pod. This is uh, hey, this is a real treat for for me, and and I know the listeners. We've we've actually been asking over the last eighteen months, who do you want on the podcast? You know, we put it out in the social media, and yours has been one of the most popular names that keeps coming up. So for for you to give your time, we really appreciate it. And and I think to start off, Marty, I think. To, to have you, obviously, you've been in the spotlight over the last few months with Netflix, and uh, that opens up a different audience. We're not just talking about now a tennis audience who knows you, but we're talking about a completely different world of, of people out there. And I think the first question is, how are you doing? You know, how are things, how, how, are, how are things in your world? Yeah, things are great. Look, I, I you know, retired life in tennis doesn't necessarily mean retired in you know, work or things like that. I, I, um, you know, I retired in 2015 and I thought, you know, I took a job with the USTA to help some of the younger Americans, you know, maybe it must've been eight to 12 weeks, you know, something like that. Not, not very long. Okay. I'll work three, three months a year, two months a year. And, uh, and, and we, we just had a, basically a newborn boy, uh, at the time and, um, thought it'd be great to, uh, you know, to spend some time with him and, you know, and just relax and, and just, you know, kind of go over the last, uh, I don't know, I guess 16 years of my professional career, but what people mostly don't understand about, Oh, why'd you retire at 32 years old or 33 years old? I mean, I've been playing tournaments since I was six. So, um, you know, so it's a long time, you know, 25 years or so. Um, so, so it was the right timing for me, but, um, you know, I, I took, you know, took that gig and I loved helping some of the younger guys and, and, and you just loved helping, um, period. And, and, uh, I found myself like super bored, um, you know, not taking a nap every day when my son would take a nap and like, you know, and, and I was just like, what am I doing here? So, um, I jumped into the finance world, um, which has taken up a, a ton of my time, um, and is a completely new world for me. I, I w- was a person who, my father handled my finances. Uh, we didn't invest in much, if anything, um, it was basically just keep, you know, sort of try and not spend it all and, and see, see how much you can make sort of deal. And, um, so it's all sort of gibberish for me jumping into that world. I've been in, in, uh, in there for about four years now. Um, again, like a, a, a totally different language. Um, and I have a blast sort of learning, learning it, learning that, um, I've, I've, done less and less sort of exhibitions, tennis exhibitions and things as I move forward um, in the finance world and, and playing a couple golf tournaments a year, a couple little celebrity golf tournaments. I like playing in the, uh, I grew up playing golf. So I, so I, I like playing in the, um, I do the U S open qualifier every year. Um, don't worry. I'm, I'm, I don't qualify and will not qualify, but I do try and it's fun. Um, so that that's about it, honestly. I mean, uh, uh, you know, with adding another daughter or another kid and in, in a in a in a girl, um, you know. So I'm my kids are almost eight and five, and and uh, you know the wife and you know just life really. So uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I my days sort of start light and fill up quickly and um, you know whether it's a, a meeting on Zoom in you know my my regular gig on a daily basis or whether it's, uh, you know, can you pick up, uh, our son at, at two o'clock from school or whatever? Um, there's always something to do. 
Absolutely. Well, you're you're downplaying the golf, Marty. I, I when I had a little look, you I'm sure I saw that you'd shot a 63 a couple of years ago in in quite a big event that was televised. And so I mean you're you're playing some serious golf if you're shooting a 63. Well, um that was one of those rare rounds where everything kind of comes together. But yes, I did. Um, yeah, but I uh, shoot. I shoot an eighty-eight when it all comes <laughs> together. You know, this is this is we're talking two very different things here. Tennis, tennis and golf for me were two things that, for whatever reason, um, tennis, golf, and baseball. Um, you know, because of the sort of the lefty swing. I'm a lefty in golf, and then it was my two-handed backhand in tennis that were sort of excelled at a young age for whatever reason. And, um, and those, those things came very natural to me. You know, I wasn't the athlete that there's two, two types of athletes, in my opinion, one type of athletes, like, you know, the LeBron James, right. They just run, jump, sprint, just like crazy athlete and jump out of the gym and, and whatever. That is not me. I am not that athlete. So I've added, I've made up a new athlete that is the, um, the slow uh, doesn't jump very high, but has really good hands and feel and coordination timing. and I <laughs> timing and all that stuff. So that athlete, which I just made up, you know, in the last couple of years is, um, is what I mostly excel at. So I, I, I learned those country club type sports, um, you know, the tennis and golf type stuff. Um, when I was really young, like a language, it's much easier to learn golf when you're young. Um, and I, I've, uh, I've always kept a, a golf club in, in, uh, you know, sort of in the back of my mind in, in, you know, wanting to, when I was younger, wanting to play, um, you know, wanting to play big events and, and, you know, junior events and things all while having, a, a you know, being from a tennis family, um, and having a father who, um, who, who's a teaching pro, uh, a tennis teaching pro and, um, you know, has a love for golf, but, but, you know, but is a teaching pro and was going to the U S open as a fan before I was even born. So you could imagine, I didn't stand much of a chance to, uh, if I was going to excel at, um, any of those sports that tennis was going to be the one he was going to push me towards. And, um, thankfully I think he got it right. And this, this athlete that you again, downplay made it to world number six you know so uh, seven seven i would have loved six i would have loved that i thought i i thought it was six or seven we'll give you top 10 we'll give you top eight you know which is which is certainly (laughs) it's uh, it's certainly not bad And, and i think there's a there's a whole world of things actually that that obviously we could open up to get an opportunity to talk to you to, to talk to someone who has been as high as that in the world of tennis. It, it, I think there's so many things. The fact that you've then been so open about your story, I think there's, there's lots to go into. But I want to stay current for a minute before we get into you. And you're talking about this, the world of finance. You know, you're, you're looking very studious. You know, you've got your, your, your into your new world, your family life. How... How much are you watching tennis? And, and obviously, we are coming to the business end in Melbourne. How, how much have you had your eye on the Australian Open this year? Well, look, I, uh, what I didn't mention there at the beginning of, um, of that was, uh, was the Davis Cup captaincy. And that is something that um, is an absolute dream job of mine, something that um, was the first thing I ever had to, uh, to interview for. Um, so, you know, that, that can be kind of daunting at times, you know, and not understanding what to, 
you know, what are they asking? And, you know, usually it's just tennis or whatever, you know, will you do this or what, you know, them, you know, people asking me for things, um, me sort of shoe on the other foot, um, doesn't feel quite as comfortable. So it was, uh, so it was an interesting, um, uh, sort of thing, how it played out getting that, um, getting that role. I didn't know what else to do, but to literally call everyone who I thought may have a hand in the decision, whether that was someone who worked at the USTA, whether that was the head of the USTA, whether that was a player. Um, I called every player, let them know exactly what the Davis cup captaincy meant to me. And, uh, you know, all the way down the line, they, um, they supported me and, uh, and I got the gig and, and it was something that, um, uh, that keeps me involved in tennis for sure. Um, to answer your question, I watch, um, a lot of tennis. I watch all of the Americans, um, uh, if they're playing, um, although Australia is pretty brutal time, time zone wise, um, so I catch those on the match highlights and things, but, um, but in and terms what an of, exciting uh, time as well for us tennis right now, it yeah, seems to be really exciting. Yeah. And in terms of, in terms of, you know, on the men's side, obviously, you know, we've got five guys that are under 23 years old and top 50 in the world and, um, uh, you know, or 23 and under, um, you know, so yeah, we have some talent, um, uh, it, you know, that stuff kind of comes in waves. You can sort of look at other uh, countries that have been pretty dominant in the past few years, you know, in the past maybe couple decades or decade or so in like a Switzerland or, um, you know, I can, let's see, I can think of like a Sweden, you know, for instance, where like, you know, really great tennis history and, um, you know, they had some incredible champions uh you know switzerland specifically some incredible champions there for for a while and 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 um you know not much behind them and so and so in the states we've got a little bit of a spot here where we don't have necessarily anyone in the top 20 but we're really deep um and we've got some really young players that are uh that show some serious promise and some serious talent so that that keeps me motivated to uh to keep an eye on what's going on um I try and watch a lot of stuff just because, you know, if we play, uh, you know, let's say Greece uh, in um, in Davis Cup next, I'll, you know, I'll keep an eye on Tsitsipas or know what, you know, he's he's up to and, you know, and, and any other country. Uh, I don't necessarily understand why I thought of him, but maybe just because he's still in the semis of Australia. Semis, so he's still going. Um, yeah. And so, look, that that um, it's an exciting time in in the world of, of professional men's tennis, because, you know, you've got Rafa and Novak who are still, you know, out there playing right now, Roger sort of up in the air in terms of, um, you know, when he's going to come back, if he's going to come back and how, you know, how successful will he be, uh, you know, cause knowing him, you, you know, I don't, I don't think he has any interest in coming back and just being a, a middling sort of ATP player, which I, I can't even, it's weird to even say that. So, uh, you know, with his, in his breath, his name. So, um, you know, that's exciting, you know, that's interesting. And then the exciting part is these young guys, you know, I mean, we're seeing, we're seeing Medvedev, we're seeing Sitsipas, we're seeing Berrettini, we're seeing Sinner, we're seeing, you know, I see a lot of these guys. We just went to a Davis cup in Turin and we had to, we had to face uh, Berrettini uh, had an injury. And so we had to face Sinner 
and um, um, ranked around twenty-five. Uh, Sene- uh, Senego, uh, oh, uh, Senego yeah, was yeah. also a great, phenomenal player. Uh, you know, young player for Italy. So, you know, and then and then you know maybe a decade ago, Italy went through a time where they didn't have really a you know a top player. So it's it comes in waves, and and I think we in this crop of American men, we've got uh, we've got a lot of talent. Um, and, and a couple of those guys are going to break through, in my opinion, and be in the top 10 in the world. And I think that's just, uh, um, you know, that's just uh, something that's going to happen. Um, on the women's side, though, the, the, the U.S. women, they, uh, they don't need any help um, from anyone speaking, speaking about them or speaking, you know, to, hey, if you're talking about American tennis and them not winning a, winning a major recently, you better be talking only about men's tennis because uh, – because the women are studs over there and they've got, we've got another two in the semis down in, down in Australia and Madison keys and Danielle Collins. And um, you know, they just keep coming like every, seems like every slam, the U S women just keep coming. So I'd be remiss to not, not bring them up when, uh, when I talk about American tennis. And that's the, it's the first grand slam since I believe 1997 that hasn't had a Williams sister in it. And 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 I guess you would go, uh, the Williams is a gone. Who else is coming? And then all of a sudden, there's two of them in the semis. And I, I think it's quite a yeah. quite a fitting way fitting way on that. Now, I would I would love to talk about this all day, but there's I, there's other other things I want to get into, Marty. I think a lot of us have an idea of your story. You know, we've 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 obviously watched you on the TV over the years, as I mentioned earlier. And if anyone's not seen. Marty Fish on Netflix, the untold, you know, it, it has to, it, it's a must watch, you know, it, it really is. It's, it's, it's incredible. But if I take you back to, to almost the start, and I believe in Minnesota was where you were brought up, you know, you mentioned earlier age six, you were already playing tournaments. So you were, you, you were good young, you know, there's, there's some people that this comes to a little bit, little bit later, Give us a little synopsis of, of of the start of your tennis journey, you know, and where that passion grew, and 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 take us up to the point of when you thought, shit, I'm I'm actually pretty good at this. This could this could be something that I want to push forward. Yeah, um, it's a great question. I, look, I I I wasn't I wasn't a great player. I just played at an early age. I, I wasn't at my first match that I played. I lost six zero six zero. Um, uh, I you was were six, six years old. <laughs> I was six, but the other kid was six as well. Okay. Um, his name was Jose de Armas. I'm still buddies with him. It Jose, just, no way. Jose, Jose know, de Armas I and I played wow. the first tennis match I ever played in my life. I, I remember warming up for the match and, and, and the kid took overheads and he had a kick serve. And I was like, what is, you know, I didn't know I hit an overhead and I certainly didn't have a kick serve at six years old, but Jose did. And, and, you know, we're still friends to this day, which is kind of funny. But look, I, I you know, I played like like most other kids and, and you know, highly encourage kids, parents that are listening to this that have athletic kids to, to play multiple sports, um, play team sports, play individual sports. Um, those things both come together really well. Tennis is a phenomenal sport to play uh, uh, in terms of growth, in terms of learning how to lose um, and, and, and winning on your own, figuring out how to win, stuff like that. Um, there's a lot of losing in tennis. There's only one guy that wins or one person that wins every, every week. And even if you win a match, you look at the stats, you can, you can, let's say you win a match six, four, six, four, which feels like 
a fairly routine win, um, you know, you may win only 51 or 52% of the points. So um, it's a lot of losing 49, 48% of the points you lose. Um, so, so it, it takes, you know, it builds character and stuff. Tennis is a phenomenal game to play um, at, at all ages. Um, I, I wasn't, uh, uh, it wasn't until I, I stopped playing baseball at 13 and, and, and started just playing tennis and golf and then stopped playing um, uh, tournament golf and just, uh, just played tennis. I went over to Saddlebrook Academy when I was 15 years old. I was a sophomore in high school, 10th grade. And, um, and, and the, the idea was to go and play against kids that were way better than me um, uh, and play every day. And I went from, uh, from, I, I remember there was a tournament in the state of Florida in the second, in our section that, uh, if you were in the top 48 in the state, you were not allowed to play the tournament. I was the number one seat in that tournament. It was called the satellite state close. So, so, I mean, look, I, I was a, you know, top 50 in, in the state of Florida is still really good, right? You can get a college, you, know, you can use it as a tool for an education. You can get a scholarship somewhere, not anywhere, but somewhere I'm sure. Um, and, uh, you know, I was on that sort of path. I went to Saddlebrook and, and spent, um, spent, uh, you know, time playing before school, went to a little bit of school, uh, a little bit, um, is an, maybe even an understatement, a little bit of school. And then, and then just, you know, went back out on the courts in the afternoon and just played and we played every day. And I went from the, you know, 50th or so ranked tennis player in the state of Florida in the 16 and unders to, uh, top, you know, kind of three or four, um, in that one year. And that one year sort of gave me, um, sort of changed my trajectory a little bit in terms of, okay, am I going to go back to Vero beach now where I grew up in the small town, sort of beachy, small, quiet town where I had one or two guys to play with and hit with my dad, or am I going to go down and hit with the likes of Andy Roddick, who was number one in the country at his age group and all the way through, or, or Dave and Chris Martin, who were really top ranked juniors, Bo Hodge, really top ranked junior um, and, and, and see how far I can take this. And with the, uh, you know, with the backing and, 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 you know, love of my parents and, and, uh, you know, them sort of supporting every situation in that regard, um, I went and did it and, uh, went down there, moved down to Boca Raton, um, lived with Andy's family, lived at his house and with his family. And his parents were, were nice enough to take me in and treat me like one of their own. And, in a good way and a bad way sometimes, you know, waking me up at 5 a.m. to stretch my shoulder. And, um, you know, Mr. Roddick, his uh, father has passed since, but um, Andy's father. But, um, you know, I just remember every morning, you know, Jerry coming in, Jerry Roddick coming in and saying, Marty, wake up, time to stretch. And I'm like, Ugh, I don't want to stretch five o'clock in the morning, <laughs> Mr. Roddick, you know, please. Um so, you know, so, so that was sort of the trajectory, right. Was um, let's play with these guys every day. Let's play with um, guys that are, I'm getting to the point to where I'm just as good as, but, but still are better than me. And, and I was, I was a fairly late bloomer in terms of, you know, I started really early, like I said, but, but didn't get good um, or really good at least until, you know, 16, 15, 16, 17 years old. And um 
you know, it wasn't until to answer the final part of your question, when did you really know that there was, you know, something special there or maybe something that you could do for a living? Um, it was kind of around that first year, eight, you know, for my first year of 18, I'm 16 years old. I had a December birthday. So parents and kids who know junior tennis will understand that December birthday is not, you know, is like you're the youngest person of, of that year. Um, I don't know if they've changed it since. I have no my, idea. My, my, son, my son who plays is November the 30th. And, and, okay. and so he, and, he, you feel my pain that like, I, I don't to, think but, you know, it until you go through it, actually, as a coach, I used, I never realized how big of a thing it was, but actually now when you go through it, you realize it is. Sure. And what, and what's funny is that at the time you're thinking, well, this stinks, you know, everybody's older than you. And, you know, they got 12 year olds that are shaving and like, I don't even, my voice hasn't even dropped yet, you know? And I'm like, I'm trying to mature at a rate that is a lot slower than they are maturing at. And so um, that, that part was, you know, was, was difficult, but, but getting to, um, you know, getting up into playing against in, in that age group against players that were older than me ultimately helped me a ton. Um, it really did. It, it ultimately helped to me to get, uh, uh, to improve at a, at a quicker rate, um, to understand how to beat players that were better than me, how to develop, uh, how to develop your strengths and, and understand your weaknesses. So, um, you know, so, so it all, it all worked out clearly, but, but, um, you know, in the moment you're, you're thinking, well, December birthday, that stinks. Well, you're playing in the satellite state closed at 15 years old or 14 years old and the satellite state closed. You can't even get into if you're in the top 48 in the state. So it wasn't all peaches and cream. Um, that's for sure. And the, the, the relationship with, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I was a tennis player of sorts, certainly nothing anywhere near your league. Um, the tennis coach, tennis has been my life, you know, so I followed, you know, very closely everyone's career. And obviously yourself, Andy, you know, have been a, have been a big part of that looking, looking from the outside. And I think until the Netflix show, a lot of people wouldn't have quite known about the relationship between you guys, you know, obviously two Americans up and coming, but living together, going through all of those things that you did. When you reflect on that relationship, it obviously seems like quite a special relationship, but I would imagine a topsy-turvy relationship. We also know that to make it in tennis, we do need lots of things to align. How, how influential for both of you, but if we say certainly from from your perspective, was that relationship with Andy in terms of the success of your career? Um, it was paramount in a lot of different ways. Um, to give you an example of our friendship or relationship, it was more of brothers instead of friends or best friends. Um, we competed and fought at everything whether it was on the tennis court, basketball court, ping pong, so, you know, the regular stuff that, that high schoolers, you know, kind of go through and, and compete at, at girls, you know, things like that. We would, I thought I had a, a faster way to, we were going to the same spot, which was, you know, we went to the same school down there and, uh, uh, I thought I had a faster way than he did. So we drove separate cars because I thought, you know, I could go my way. And we had this thing where you could only go a certain mile per hour. And like I, my way was better than your way. So I'm going to drive because I don't want to go with you because you're going to get there slower than I am, you know, kind of thing. So like, you know, we, we competed at everything. Um, 
but he was someone who was um, he really understood. I think if you can, if you asked him talent wise, um, at least with like, you know, just raw sort of talent skills, hand skills, um, anticipation, things like that. He would say that I was superior to him, but where he was superior to me was, which was far more important was the understanding the work ethic, Mm -hmm. understanding competitiveness, being competitive, um, in every scenario and situation. Um, and, and just never, ever, I, you know, I didn't like quit per se, but like never, ever, ever giving in. Um, and he just, you know, apart from obviously his physical tools, you know, he was a big guy. So, uh, you know, he obviously developed one of the best serves of all time. Uh, you know, he had one of the biggest forehands, you know, I had ever seen certainly. And, and he used that a lot in his early days to get to number one in the world. Um, he really understood what it took, the dedication, the discipline, the professionalism at a young age. And I didn't, uh, it took me until, um, and thankfully I did figure it out, but it did take me until I was 28 years old, you know, and he figured it out when he was 12, uh, and just developed from there. And, and so that was why he excelled at a really young age. And that's why he excelled at every age level, which is really rare, as you know, I'm sure in tennis, right? Like the best players that are 10 and 12 years old, aren't necessarily going to be the best players when they're 20 or 30. Um, they're, it's actually fairly rare. Um, Andy was number one in the state and the country, 10s, 12s, 14s, 16s, 18s, and beyond. Um, and so to, to have that to, um, to watch, to have that to compete against um, on a daily basis um, really drove me, motivated me. I wanted to be as good or better than him. I also wanted, I also wanted success for him because that meant success. You know, that meant that if I were going to stick with him, which I thought I could, uh, you know, I had no reason not to, because I'm a young, uh, you know, punk 15, 16, 17 year old kid. Why would I think that I wasn't better than him? So I could follow along his success, um, and have similar success of myself. Um, it didn't necessarily work out just like that, but I, I had that to sort of lean on and, and, and incredibly thankful for that. I mean, he, he, that, you know, he, you look at, guys nowadays i mean they're very very rare but we know who they are they're sasha's verev they're they're uh uh, uh pass they're um you know federer they're nadal they're even djokovic andy murray was really good at a young age i mean these guys that like really understood you know broke in at 16 7 leighton hewitt you know another guy where you know he just broke in at such a young age i mean you can keep going back to michael chang and all the you know forever yeah. but like those are the ones that was his path. And those were the ones. And, you know, I think it's fairly easy to say if just if Roger didn't exist, how many majors would Andy have, you know, not even the others, uh, Novak, you know, beat him a bunch and Andy had success against Novak as well. And, and Rafa had success against him and Andy had success against Rafa, but man, Roger beat him a lot and he beat him in some big spots and he beat him in, a lot of semifinals of tournaments that Roger ended up winning, you know, grand slam semifinals. Uh, he must've beaten him in five, six, seven, eight of those um, to where Roger then went on to win the tournament, which in fact, Andy probably would have gone on to win that tournament. So there was a final. So I, I was lucky enough to play a Wimbledon 
I want to say 2004, 2005, mm-hmm. it doubles. And Andy, I'm sure, played him in the final, maybe 2004. I'm sure there'll be tennis people out there that'll tell me I'm wrong. But there was there was one of the years they played. And as a Brit, you know, I was I we were getting ready for like Manchester Challenger and the, the grass court events after Wimbledon. And I think they came off for rain and I was in the, cause in the locker room because Andy, I don't know if you remember this, but Andy always used to, he didn't go in the seeding locker room for some mm-hmm. reason. So he was always <clears throat> the two years that I played it. He was actually in the, the me immortals locker room he was upstairs. Yeah, <laughs> you he, know? He, we went upstairs and, and we would get, you know, he would, he would always be sure showing us his fan mail and you know, all these kind of stuff. It was a, a really nice <laughs> insight for, for, for us to see. But he came in that locker room at two sets to love down or whatever it was after the rain, or it could have been after the match. And he demolished four, five, six rackets. And you could see this, like, he, he just couldn't beat him. He, he, Federer was there. He was in his head. He, he was he was that guy he couldn't get past. He, you know, and you could see the frustration in it. And to, to see that firsthand, because, because I guess Andy always had almost a, a, an arrogance, but a, a, a confidence about him that Federer just seemed to knock out of him. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, I don't, I don't know if it was just a matchup thing or just Roger was just better. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, I remember that. I remember all that stuff. I remember, you know, there are two locker rooms for people who don't know there's a seated locker room and an unseated locker room and, and the unseated locker room is upstairs and there's far too many people in that room, in that room. And then the, the, the seated blocker room, which I wasn't able to make it into until 2004 that year. Um, and you better believe that I went straight down there when I made, when I made it. Um, Cause they did your laundry right after the match and they were awesome down there. I mean, they had these showers with this crazy water pressure and oh, we had them. We had them as well. We have them. Okay, as well. Well, we had good well, showers. Make no mistake, though. I mean, I spent I spent 2005 and six and seven and a couple other, you know, a bunch of other years in that locker room, too. So it wasn't like I was just had a, you know, like Federer or even Andy, where I had a, a, you know, a locker that was just had my name on it down there. So but no, that that was the tournament for me, honestly, that that got away from, you know, that he was destined to win. You know, I mean, he was destined to he was a great grass court player obviously won queens many times he was uh he was certainly robbed a wimbledon title one way or another um you know whether it was you know like he said oh four oh two he had a great you know a great run uh he was a little younger there um oh three lost to roger in the in the semi uh you know he had some big some big, uh, big wins there as well. When he was younger, beating Greg Rosetsky and things like that. When, you know, Rosetsky was a, you know, an Englishman back then, or maybe he's still, what is he Canadian English? Who knows? But uh, anyway, see, he had some, he had some great wins. And again, like he was just, he was awesome to, I don't want to get bogged down on Andy because this isn't about Andy, but we, uh, he was, he was awesome. He had, um, his work ethic, like I said, was un, unmatched and it was awesome to uh, awesome to have that um, as sort of a alpha male um, of our generation to watch him. And just to finish the point on Andy, he lost his last two matches to Marty Fish. I think he lost his last three. 
if we, if we go back, I, I'm okay. So here, here's our head to head, right? I won the first one yep. in Delray beach, 2003, but he pulled out we played first round. He was number one seed and I was unseated. Um, he pulled out of the match, I think because he was, he knew he was going to lose, but he's claimed he had an injury. Um, so it was we've all seen that before. We've all seen yeah, that yeah, yeah. before. And then, uh, and then he beat me nine times in a row. Yeah. And then I beat him to get to nine four. Did I not? Is there? Well, it you need you need to have a word with the ATP because the ATP have you down as nine and three. So the, the, that, well, the I mean, they must be, they must be right. <laughs> the, the, you you won the hey, you won the first and you and you won the last two is is what the ATP. I said. won the first and the last, and that's all that matters. That's all that matters. So you, as a as a professional tennis player. Against somebody, look, I'm I'm around players at, at an academy. Parents to dream of having someone who gets to world number seven, and to to have achieved what you've achieved. But everyone's mind works different in this sport. And when you look back, do you view your career as a successful career? It's a great question. Um, the answer is yes. But man, did I have some hurdles um, and some obstacles that were either self-inflicted or, or unlucky. Um, you know, the, obviously the mental health stuff was out of my control and, and the game and my life really was taken away from me for a bit. Obviously, my career was taken away from me at maybe the highest point of it. But, uh, but in the beginning was my fault, you know, I mean, like I had some injuries, but injuries, you know, you can say, oh, he's unlucky with injuries, but I had some injuries because I was, I wasn't working hard enough. I wasn't taking care of my body well enough. Um, I, I needed to improve my physical fitness. I never thought that it was that big of a deal. I could, when I, when I, the problem was I had these, the, I would have these runs every once in a while, Dan, where like, I would, I would be, you know, if I played really well. I was a good player. Um, I could beat anyone if I played really well, but it's rare to play really well. And I would have some success and then I would buy a car and have fun. And then next thing I knew I was ranked, uh, you know, 35 again, I would get down to 15 and then I moved back up to 40 or 50 or, or even in one case in 2008, uh, 99 entering the tournament in Indian Wells. Um, and, and, you know, having a lot of stuff come together there and beating Rob, Roger for the first and only time um, in the semifinals there. I knew I could be good, but how was I going to be able to put it all together um, uh, uh, consistently? And that was my problem. I was never consistent with my results. Uh, Were you my, protecting? My... Is, there, is there any element of because you were good, because you were talented, when when people people spoke about Marty Fish, it was geez, this guy's skillful. Geez, this guy can play. Do do you think you were almost protecting yourself because there was a fear of almost letting it all out there, doing the whole thing, and still maybe failing to what you felt you could have achieved? Yeah, no, I don't think so. And I understand, I completely understand what you're getting at because I feel like there are some players that have that that crutch or that cop out, right? Like, Oh, well, I just didn't try that hard. I, I tried hard. Um, yeah. That was never the issue. Like you step on the court. I didn't act like an angel um, on the court. Every time I was a feisty dude, when I was young, I was immature. 
Um, so yes, of course, where there's some things that I wish is, wish I didn't do on the court or didn't act like that on the court, of course, of course. Um, off the court, I knew what kind of person I was, so it didn't necessarily translate that much if I got into it with my coach or my father or something on a, you know, during a match, um, it would never translate really off the court because, you know, and I, I guess you can go around and ask people, but I, I'm a good person. I was, I, I had lots of friends. Um, I'm from Minnesota and they have a saying, Minnesota nice. I am Minnesota nice. So like, I, like I had that in me. I like when people like me. Um, so I, I wanted that as well. And so I um, would sort of guard against it off the court. Now on the court, again, I was really a feisty, um, if things didn't go my way, I didn't handle the negative stress very well at all. I'd try and deflect a lot. Never really was my fault. Um, uh, that type of, that type of stuff, but I, I never, never was able to, or, you know, came off the court and was like, Oh, it's okay. Cause I didn't try that hard. Uh, certainly not. Um, there are players like that. Um, I won't mention names, but we know who they, who some of them are. Um, yeah. We can guess. So, um, but, but look, I, you know, it wasn't until, um, wasn't until I, I had my sort of final injury. I had a really fun run. Give you a quick story. I, I, I at the U S open, I I'd go and play the U S open. I never had much success there pre 2008. And Andy and I were talking and he said, and I said, dude, why do you like the open so much? It's so hectic. And it's just like, there's just people pulling you in all different directions and New York and it's loud and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I'll never forget this. He says, have you played a night match yet? And I said, no, I actually haven't. I haven't played, you know, I didn't get draw, you know, a top name early on or something like that. And certainly wasn't going to have a night match on Ash because of me at that, at that moment. Um, so I said, no, I never, never have. And he says, come to me when you do. And sure enough, that year, and I, that was before that tournament, that year I played two. I played one in the third round against James Blake, um, beat him in straight sets, and then had one in the quarterfinals against Nadal. And it was electric. And I fell in love with the tournament right then. And all of a sudden it went from my almost my least favorite event, just looking forward to it, obviously of the event you wanted to do well at the most, but my least favorite event to my favorite event, you know, the biggest one of the year, the one that I wanted to do best at every year. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so those, those, those night matches really did it for me um, and, and got me on the, on that path. Now, now fast forward to literally 12 months later, I am, um, pulling out of the U S open because I have a knee injury because I'm, walking around at 200 pounds i'm six foot three two 200 pounds and that you know you're not walking down the street going like oh well you know look at that kid he's overweight but you're like look at that kid that's a professional athlete and you're like that's a professional athlete so like that would be the sort of how to how to look at me or judge me as as the you know in the looks department at least in terms of the, my physical fitness um and I had a, uh, so I had that knee surgery and I had the time. So I wasn't able to, to come back to the U S open. That's this tournament that I fell in love with, you know, I wasn't able to go back and it really hurt, uh, uh, mentally, emotionally that I wasn't able to go back to that tournament and, and just kind of defend the quarterfinals that I had made. I didn't, you know, it wasn't like I won the tournament or anything, but I, I had a nice run and lost in a doll in a close match. And it was an awesome tournament, you know, for me. And so, I wasn't able to go back and I had time. Um, I had the time necessary to 
cut some weight, to get on a diet, to hire a chef, to turn into Novak Djokovic. Now watch every single thing that came into my body and went in on purpose. Um, and, and it worked and it got me to a point to where I could, I didn't have to rely on me playing well to be successful. I could rely on my fitness way more. So when I played well and I had my fitness, I was almost impossible to beat. I beat everyone when I played that way yeah. outside of probably Djokovic. Um, when I was playing average, but I had my fitness, I could beat everyone that I was supposed to beat, but probably no one that I shouldn't have beaten, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, and you can build a hell of a career beating people you're supposed to beat. Um, if you're good and talented. Um, and I, I was, and, and I was lucky enough to have the talent and I, I parlayed the work ethic and I finally understood the work ethic and dedication, discipline, professionalism that Andy learned at 10, yeah. I learned at 28 and I'm just thankful that I learned it. So this is kind of full circle to your question of, did you have a successful career? Um, I think I did because I can put my head on my pillow now, knowing that I did everything I could possibly do to get everything out of my game, what I was God given. And that wasn't my path wasn't to win a grand slam. It wasn't to be number one in the world. Um, mine was number seven. That was as high as I could get. Now, could I have gotten a little bit higher if my mental health or my anxiety disorder uh, took me away from the game? I don't know, but I don't dwell on that. Um, at all. I Good. dwell on the fact that I, I worked my butt off. I worked as hard or harder than any athlete in the world at my fitness. Um, and it turned my, it turned my life around forever. Um, because not only did it give me the opportunity to, you know, to make, you know, adding zeros to paychecks and things like that. Um, it gave me the life that I have today, which is, um, you know, living in Los Angeles, my kids go to private school. I'm the Davis cup captain. I mean, if I never would have turned it around, they don't give those things to guys that are ranked 30 in the world, their whole career. Um, they give them to, to players that are former players that guys look up to and that guys watched and are, you know, maybe we're fans of or whatever it is. They don't give it to guys that are ranked 50. Um, so, so I was really, really, at least in the U S so I was really, really, thankful that I was able to eventually figure that out. Well, well done. And I, and I tip my hat to, to you. I mean, you, for, from, from an outsider's view, you've had an incredible tennis career, but I, I think as, as life goes on, tennis starts to become almost contextualized within our life. And it's actually quite a short period, actually, you know, when we're in that bubble, it's like tennis, tennis, that's what it is. It's, 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 all, it's, it's all that matters. And I think when we look back at the legend of Marty Fish, yes, we'll look back as a world-class tennis player who had incredible results on the court, but we'll look back at the impact you have had on so many people's lives by speaking out about your mental health issues, you know, something that, and I'm a big believer that we all have health issues, whether it's physical body or, or mind, all of us do. And it, there's a range of that, you know, there's a range of breaking a leg or having a cold, you know, there's a range of having difficulty or having a, an anxiety disorder. And I think the fact that you 
have shined a, a light on that is what will will go down in 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 the history for, for Marty Fish. Now, if we look now, go to two thousand and twelve, and you know, well documented from from that period, fourth round, about to play Roger Federer. It almost doesn't get a, a bigger moment th- than that. Talk the listeners through that moment, and and was was that the first time that you'd experienced? I know you mentioned on on the, the Netflix show that a few months earlier you'd started to maybe have some internal battles going on. Talk us through that period. Yeah, so um, I had a uh, I had an issue early in 2012 called tachycardia. It's an electrical issue in your heart. It's uh, there's a, electrodes around your heart and they fire, and it's like the quarterback to your heart. When they fire, it tells your heart to beat. So fire, pa bump, fire, pa bump. There's thousands of them. Some of them can can malfunction uncontrollably. And so think of like, they're just a couple of them out of the thousands are, uh, you know, just sort of flat, just sort of flashing or flaring up and just going pa 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 pa. And, and so your heart doesn't know anything but to, okay, well, this is telling me to beat it's the quarterback. So I got to beat. So it would, it would be, I was very diligent at the time with my training. I would train in tournament scenarios where I was during a match and, and I would get my heart rate as high as it could possibly get. And then I'd have 25 seconds to get it down. I use breathing techniques and everything. I mean, it was a, the whole gamut of, of every, when I say every stone unturned, literally every stone unturned to train and get my body and myself in the best physical uh, position that I could. Now that uh, haunted me a bit because I knew that in those scenarios, I couldn't get my heart to beat more than 192 beats per minute. That was as high as I could get it to. I remember it like it was yesterday um, when I trained like that. Uh, when these uh, episodes would happen with this tachycardia, um, it would be tw- 220, 230 beats per minute. So obviously incredibly uncomfortable uh, and you can't stop it. It sort of stops on its own. Um, you can't die from it, but hell if I knew that you, that that were the case. Right. I mean, like, so I get it once in Miami after a loss in, uh, in uh, the, my, at the Miami or whatever it was called. Like that was just called the Lipton. Like it, Lipton, like it yeah. always should be called it should um, be, yeah. uh, down there and lost to Juan Monaco in a, in a quarterfinal match, you know, good match. I, I got my butt kicked, but he, but you know, he played real well. And, Anyway, so I went to the hospital that night because I had I thought I was dying. I really did. And and so, you know, kind of fast forward just a bit that the 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 traumatic experiences that I had from that where I had to go a couple times and figure out I had ended up having a procedure called an ablation um, where they basically go in and kill the bad electrodes so they won't so that won't happen again. It's about an 80% accuracy rate to uh, for it to be successful. Um, and mine was successful the first time. So they went in, did it. Um, and I, I got out of it fine. Now from those traumatic experiences, I was having some sort of thoughts of like, is this going to come on again? Is this going to happen again? Is this, you know, is my, is my heart? Okay. Yeah. You know, they, those thoughts morphed into, uh, sort of everyday life. Like, am I going to even feel okay? Like, like, Imagine playing a five set match at the U.S. Open or, you know, anywhere and, and you know, four hour match or whatever. And your body is going to feel like crap after like just, insta- you know, just what just because like anybody from Djokovic all the way to, you know, myself at the time. And, and so 
I would sort of dwell on those feelings and know that those feelings were coming um, after the match, but I never had any issues during the match for whatever reason. It was my only safe haven, idle mind, devil's playground. I had a lot to think about and worry about when I was on the court. So I never thought about it then, but right after and right before I would always have these weird thoughts in, in, you know, at the time I didn't, you know, early August, I didn't know what they were. I was just starting to sort of figure out, didn't have anyone around me that had any mental health issues. So I was just sort of starting to figure out what, what mental health was. Uh, and, and so it was sort of understood that I was suffering from anxiety of some sort. Um, but I'm going to try and get through this tournament, this last tournament of the summer, and then we'll just go home and figure it out from there. And I didn't, you know, and I had gotten to the third round and finally got to play one of those matches I was talking about where the night matches on Arthur Ashe, where it wasn't for me, it was usually for the other guy. Well, this one was finally for me. I was, you know, the number one ranked American in the world and, you know, in the top 10 or right around there. And, and it was a Saturday night match and, and, I was the headliner, you know, and like that was really unique as well. And, and maybe stressful, uh, you know, deep down and, and, and maybe uh, the culprit of, you know, the, the anxiety uh, attack that I had on the court for the first time that night. Um, it was a pretty stressful match as well. Jill Simone is a guy that can make you stress, you stress, you pull all your hair out during a match. So, um, so, so, you know, so anyway, so I got through that, um, spent a couple hours in the hospital or the doctor's office that night, you know, at 2 a.m. or whatever that we finished uh, in the at the U.S. Open there and, um, you know, went home and sort of went back to the hotel. And you're sort of thinking like, well, how am I going to a I'm going to feel like crap the next day because I'm not just not going to sleep and, you know, I'm going to sleep a little bit. And even if you're not even hung over uh, you don't sleep and you wake up and you're just like, my body feels like crap. Ugh, like I'm out of it. Well, if that happened with anxiety disorder, you are freaking out. You are, you are waiting for that moment, that ball to drop or that moment to happen. Um, and you're worrying about that moment to happen. And certainly it did happen, but I spent the entire day, didn't go out to, uh, back to, uh, the site, didn't put, play tennis that day. Um, felt like I needed to look after myself and my body and whatever. And let's just try and get our mind right. And just, you know, let's play Federer on Labor Day, Monday, you know, the match, the moment, the, um, the spot you wanted to be in to, you know, to, 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 you were working so hard to get to, right? Like that I sacrificed so much to get to. Um, and I couldn't do it. I couldn't go out there and play. Now, I didn't know this, um, uh, I'm waiting for my, for the car to, you know, transportation to come pick you up. They'll pick you up in a, in a cool Mercedes or something like that. And, and um, so I'm, you know, just sort of waiting at the hotel and just not doing well, you know, anxiety attack after anxiety, I can't get out of, you know, it's happening every five minutes if, you know, lasting a long time kind of thing. And so um, thankfully my wife was with me in the car because it's someone, and I mentioned her because it's someone who didn't grow up around the lifestyle of sport. Um, you know, she went to, uh, she was grew up out here in LA. So she went to Beverly high and UCLA and UCLA law school and didn't leave a three mile radius from her house and, and, you know, kept, you know, stayed very close with her family. And, and I left home at 15 years old. So we, we lived different lives. Um, 
she didn't understand the mentality of never quit, never show weakness, never show fear to your opponent or to anyone, um, which is how we grew up as athletes and, and certainly as tennis players. You can't show emotion. Don't show negative emotion to your other. Don't show them you're tired. Don't show them you're pissed off. All that stuff. Right. Um, so she didn't grow up in that. So she so if she wasn't there, I never would have thought don't play. And so she leans over as I'm crying in the car, you know, just, I have no idea how I'm going to do this. I'm not a crier either. Like it's very rare. And, and she says, you know, you don't have to play. And I went, and this right away, half a second later, this weight just lifted off my shoulders. And I was just like, wow, you're right. I don't actually have to do it. I don't have to play. And like that thought would never have crossed my mind if she wasn't there, if she had said that she, I never ever would have thought that just because that was how I was not, not because like, I don't know why just that, that was how I was trained. Yeah. My mind was trained, just, you know, never quit, never give up and always try hard. Right. And, and so, and I did those things, you know, throughout my career, I wasn't the best, I wasn't in the best shape, but I tried hard. And I never quit. If um, just if you had played that day, what do you think would have happened? I don't know. I mean, I would have somehow, you know, I would have lost. I would have somehow figured. I don't. I have no idea. I mean, I would have hoped that I would have felt a little bit better. It's really hard to say to even think back and go, well, how would have, how would that have been? Um, how would that have gone? And so, um, I'm thankful that I didn't have to do that because that would have yeah. been, you know, thinking about it would have. It, you know, would have been a living hell is literally uh, thinking about that. So, um, so that was sort of the course in 2012 and, and, you know, came home a few days after couldn't, couldn't get on a plane right away, came home a few days after and, and was able to start the healing process. Um, and, and that, you know, kind of fast forward to, you know, sort of the end of, and the beginning of, you know, talking about this Netflix documentary, um, that started the healing process to where I could get somewhat of my life back. And that took a year or years to do. Um, mental health will always be a part of my life and people who deal with severe mental health issues, whether it's, you know, panic, anxiety, depression, uh, bipolar, you know, a, a lot, there's a lot of stuff there. Um, those people will always like a, it's like a alcoholic that's a recovering alcoholic, right? Like they'll always be on guard. Um, they'll always be ready. They live every day is a new day and they start over every day. It's very similar with mental health where you start over every day and you will win every day and you will beat it every day, but not every day is perfect and not every day, um, is all cookies and cream. So it, it took a while to, to figure out and develop the tools necessary to, to combat it. Uh, the medication took a little bit to kick in. Um, and I was able to sort of fight and get my life back. And the reason why I was so outward about telling my story is going through it. I'm a huge sports fan and growing, going through it. Um, I never really had a success story to lean on where I said to myself, oh, I remember that basketball player or that golfer or that tennis player, or whatever. And they, he, he had some struggles with mental health or he or she and, and, and came out with it and talked about it, took him away from the game and, 
And then they got back and they were, they got back into the fire and they were able to compete again at a high level. Um, once I was able to step back on the court at the U S open in 2015, I scheduled that to be my last tournament. That was the last time I had been to the U S open was 2012 when I pulled out of the match against Roger. Um, so 2015 was a really, really important time for me, um, but not a lot of people understood it or, or knew it even. Um, I did come out with a, a piece of, in the Players' Tribune that I wrote that um, had a little bit of what I had been going through and what I will continue to go through. But, um, but apart from that, my friends didn't really know how bad it was. They knew I was off the tour, but not, you know, just not how how bad I was and how in bad a shape I was and how the fact that if I didn't have the support system that I had, if I didn't have my wife, who was an, a total angel during that whole process, if I didn't have that, there's no telling if I'd even be here, let alone where I'd be. Um, so, so I look at uh, uh, people with mental health, they have gone through mental health, people that commit suicide, suicide rates, even suicide rates during a pandemic like we're going through right now where a lot of people are struggling. It gives people hope that I had those types of thoughts where am I going to hurt myself? Am I going to hurt someone else? Um, and I got out of those thoughts and was able to not only get out of those thoughts, but get back in and play at a fairly high level back at the US Open where all of that came to a head. And, um, and I wanted to share that success story with people because I didn't have one when I was going through it. Amazing story. And, 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 and well done on, on sharing it and, and sharing it here on the podcast as well. I, I, I have two questions on it and I'm very conscious of your time. I have to do with a quick fire round with you at the end. We can't have control the controllables yeah. without that. <laughs> the two, the two questions that, that jumped to my mind, one is why why did you wait three years to talk about it publicly? Um, a great a great question, easy answer. Um, because that was the time when I was comfortable openly talking about it to strangers. To being, I was open to being vulnerable to loved ones. Yeah, um, that was that was fairly easy for me, and that's really important in mental health issues. Being vulnerable. Um, you know, telling loved ones how you feel, yep. but telling complete strangers how I felt um, took some time. So that that was why. And do you think if we take about now, obviously we've had Naomi Osaka that's spoken publicly about it. You know, as it as she was having her her episodes that that happened. Then also Simone Biles at the at the Olympics. You know, we've had some really high profile people. Do you think? Do you think now that it's becoming normalized? For people to discuss it do you think even if it would be 2012 is not that long ago but yeah. but actually the 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 landscape of how we view mental health i think has changed a hell of a lot if we go go back to 2012 it kind of wasn't the the done thing do you think it would be easier for an athlete like yourself going through that to be able to be open on it now than it was 10 years ago i certainly would have been able to say why i wasn't playing at the time um, cause I wasn't able to do that. I couldn't say, oh, I'm going to not play this match because I'm having a, a anxiety and I I'm having severe anxiety and it's my mental health that I'm protecting yep. again. Like that, that would have been like unheard of back then. Um, honestly, it's the stigma of having mental health issues. We call it mental health. It's 
part of your brain. It's a chemical serotonin leaves your brain. It's part of your brain, which is part of your body. I know they call it mental health. It seems like physical health to me. Um, it's just health, um, taking care of your body, taking care of your mental health, your physical health is your health. Um, and, uh, so, so yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I became much more comfortable and much more open when I was able to, uh, you know, when I was able to talk about it again with, again, with strangers, but I, you know, I, it would also be remiss to say that there were a lot of athletes that were coming out and saying they were having issues um, at that time. There really weren't. I mean, I did come out with a piece in the Players Tribune and they did talk about it during the U.S. Open there where I played a couple matches and they talked about it while I was playing. And, and I did have some people reach out to me after that um, that I still have made friendships for life with Fortune 500 CEOs. Uh, athletes that you and I have heard of that I had never met in my life uh, reached out and said, um, thank you. And, and that I hope you're doing okay kind of thing. And um, all of them, you know, for the most part, I've kept in touch with to this day. And my, my, my last question before the quick fire round over the last six, seven years, has there been any more episodes of that level of intensity with your mental health since? Uh, not to the extent of uh, 2012, August. No. Um, you know, now if you say, you know, let's just say August to or July to, you know, 2014, probably, you know, kind of late 2014. Um, since then, I've, you know, again, you, you develop, like I mentioned before, you develop the tools, you get the, the you get a great, there, there's, three things that I think are super important that I want people to understand on mental health that don't understand it and don't know it, haven't been around it. Number one, support system. A one, like just the most important thing, right? Like you have to be able to talk about it and tell people how you're feeling, what you're feeling like, and be vulnerable with, with someone, anyone, um, therapy and medication slash doctor right? Like someone that can prescribe a medication to get you over the hump like that. Um, very important. Um, someone that will teach you how to develop the tools that it, that it is necessary to develop, to change the narrative on your, on your mental health. Um, uh, when you're, when you're going through an episode, changing the channel on your negative thoughts, things like that, you can develop the tools to do that. And then, and then finally, um, talking about it, being open with everyone, being open and honest, um, uh, understanding that you're not alone, understanding that there are tens of millions of just Americans that deal with mental issues and mental health issues every single day, knowing that you're not alone and that you will beat it is the third and final thing. Marty, you have been above and beyond coming on to to speak to me today and and i think you know the messages that you give are going to impact so many people you know that's 
that's been my motivation behind these podcasts, you know, to put a smile on people's face, to energize them, educate them in different areas, entertain them in different areas, but, but, but also to get these strong messages out there. And, you know, there's going to be a hell of a lot of people that are going to listen to this. And, and I'm sure there's going to be a, a, a big percentage of them that are, that are going to really, really benefit from, from hearing your story, from hearing your words. So thank you so, so much. But before you go, I, I have to, because the <laughs> listeners will kill me if we don't do the quick fire question. So it's up right, to I'm you ready. how it's up to you how quick you are. Um, okay. What does control the controllables mean to you? Controlling the controllables to me means controlling things that are. I'm going to repeat it in, that you're in control of. But I'll give you examples. Okay, so like. <laughs> Let's let's take it to tennis. Okay, like there are only so many things that you can control. And this is good for a junior player or parents to understand as well. There's only so there's only a few things that you can control in professional tennis or, or high level tennis. There's three things, in my opinion. There is your attitude. You can control your attitude You can control how you act on the court. Right. You can control your effort. You can control how hard you work. Uh, how hard you try and never quitting and you can control. And third, and finally, you can control your fitness. You can X that part out. You can say, I'm going to walk on this court and I am going to be the fittest tennis player in the world or the fittest athlete in the world, or in your mind, the fittest athlete in the world. And that's where I got myself to where I was like this I am. And whether I was, or I wasn't didn't matter to me because it didn't matter at all because I thought I was. So you can control your attitude, your effort, and your fitness. Love it. Love it. Your favorite Grand Slam? I mean, we talked about it, the U.S. Open. I do love Wimbledon. Um, they're all unique in a certain way. The U.S. Open is the one that if you said you have to win, well, you can only win one. Um, I would win the U.S. Open. Um, God, I loved going down to Australia. I just loved it. We, I, I said to my wife the other day, like, don't you miss – you know that even that flight like just miss getting down there and she goes yes i miss it so much um so even that one there's the happy slam doesn't seem so happy right now but it was the happy slam for the players and and really easy for all the players and everything so well, um, I, I miss it a lot as well. We need to we need to have a deal that we'll meet for a beer in Melbourne over the next couple of years at some point, January 2023, done. January 2024. It's, it's I'll do non-alcoholic beer, though, since I don't drink. But I, I do like the taste. I'll, I'll go with you on that as well. Dri <laughs> driver or putter? Driver, although... Man, if if I if I did know how to putt, um, maybe I'd be playing with these guys that are playing right here instead of because uh, I can hit it fine, but I I can't putt it. Forehand or backhand? Oh, backhand, not even close. Serve or return? Serve. It's you're in control. ATP Cup or Davis Cup? <laughs> Davis Cup. <laughs> PTPA or no? Um, great question. Rayco, who am I going to alienate from this? <laughs> Some friends like Isner and Novak and Masek or Roger. And uh, honestly, I don't know enough to be. I mean, that's kind of a cop out. And oh, let me just pick one. I'll go. I thought you said you weren't political. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I'll go not non 
PPTA or whatever the hell they call it. <laughs> the fact that you don't know what it's called is that means you're not on it. There you uh, go. Yeah. Did you ever make it up with Frank Dancevich? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, look, he's the Davis Cup captain for Canada. At least he was in 2019. We played Canada. I love Frank. I think Frank was an, is an awesome guy. I thought he was a better player than he thought he was. Like, he he was he a was phenomenal good. athlete, a phenomenal athlete. At one point, the guys made fun of me because, and this was before we had our little a little uh, uh, match that we played again, you know, what you're talking about in 2010, where, like, I would say, like, Frank Dancevich is a top five athlete in on the tour. And, the, you know, and, like, Andy and James and these guys that maybe – you know, what are you talking about? I'm like, dude, trust me. This guy is a phenomenal athlete. So I, I, I had a ton of respect for Frank. It was just that moment. And you're going to have to go and watch the documentary oh, to understand yeah. what, what we're talking about. But um, in that moment, that had to be done in my mind and the rest is history. So I will beg for Frank's <laughs> forgiveness forever. If he doesn't give it to me, I'll, I'll live, but uh, but uh, I do love Frank. Clear courts or hard courts? Hard courts. Medical timeout or not? Yeah, medical timeout. Just you know, you need sometimes guys really need it. Um, and if you felt like the guy would abuse it, then tell him you thought it would abuse it because I did that plenty of times too. <laughs> I probably did that to Frank. Roger, <laughs> Roger or Rafa? Oh man. I can't. I mean, I just can't. I mean, I like them both in so many different ways, you know. Um, how about Roger poetry in motion on grass, Rafa poetry in motion on clay? We'll take it. Serena of <laughs> Serena or Venus. Um, love them both as well. Um, I'm going to go with Serena because she was my partner in Hopman Cup. And we won. Won, 2008. 2008, yeah. We we won that. And I still got this this diamond-encrusted tennis ball. It's the coolest trophy. Um, And I'll always have that that Serena and I won a match or won a tournament together. So I'll go with Serena on that Super Bowl winners, 2022. The Minnesota Vikings. Uh, Are they not in it, though? So this year... Oh, this time. Okay, this I'm sorry. Time. I you meant like next Come year. Come on. They, 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 still they the can't... Minnesota Vikings. Um, <laughs> um, I'll go with the Rams. The Rams have two home games now. I want my boy. I'm an LSU. I went to LSU, you see. So so I'm a Joey Burrow. Uh, he's my boy. So you so. like Burrow and Jamar Chase, but you also yeah. like my guy, Justin Jefferson. Yes, exactly. Yeah, there's there's a lot. There's a lot of the LSU boys. I wonder why you and Skupski are such good That's, friends. Well, yeah, that, exactly. There's the, there's the link. What's one rule change you would have in tennis? It's a long pause on a podcast. We can, um, we can edit it. We can edit, can edit it. it. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to sound smooth on this one. Don't worry. <laughs> Let's see. Um, uh, no, t- uh, no three out of five in Wimbledon doubles. Very, very, min- you know, kind of minimal or whatever. But why did we play three out of five when, when, when everyone else plays two out of three, let's play two out of three. So everyone wants to play Wimbledon doubles. I didn't play Wimbledon doubles a ton because of the only because of two out of the three out of five sets in doubles. 
And think about this next one carefully because it's it's in the small print that you are responsible for the answer to this. You're responsible for bringing this person on. Who should our next guest be on Control the Controllables? Okay. Um, how about someone non-tennis but really loves tennis? Like, um, have you had, how many of those types have you had in terms of we've like- had, uh, We've had a couple. We've had a couple. I mean, I'm thinking, um, look, I mean, you're, you're a big name here, Marty, for this podcast. You know, I think, I'm thinking you can start opening some doors here, you know. Sure, what's, no, look, you know, I was doors? thinking, I was thinking, you know, the best tennis playing golfer, just because I love, you know, I have a love for golf, is Sergio Garcia. So how about we try and get Sergio on next? He, I was a groomsman in his wedding. He's one of my best friends. Oh, wow. Um, and is an incredible tennis player incredible tennis player. I still think, and if you get him on there in our, in our, you know, in our sick little minds, um, we think that there are rankings for tennis and golfers both back and forth. He thinks he's number one because of his tennis game and obviously his golf game. And I think I'm number one with my (laughs) tennis game and then my golf game. So, um, I don't know how we can put that to bed. It seems like we could fairly easily do that. I think I would crush him in tennis and I could, hang somewhat in golf and that's why that's why i'm number one in the world in tennis golf rankings and he's number <laughs> well we need to get this happening so my my tennis academy is in a place called sota grande in spain which sergio yeah. which sergio will know very well because he actually spends quite a bit of time down here because because we're surrounded by the most beautiful golf courses in the world so we've got valderrama where they mm-hmm. had the 1997 uh, Ryder Cup, and and then and then also Real de Soto Grande, Finca Cortesan. So this sounds like this event could happen. The tennis happens at Soto Tennis Academy. The golf happens at Valderrama. You know, we we'll host it. You know, we'll we'll if you can get Sergio on, we'll discuss it with him. And I think we've got an event to happen. If there's some sort of equal sort of scoring system that we can come up with, where like a six-one set equals like a six up win in golf or something like that, then I'm 1000% in because I am beating his butt. <laughs> awesome. Marty Fish, you're a, you're a top man. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much. You get back to the golf and the rest of your day. You take care of yourself and, and thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me, Dan. It's a pleasure. Well, that was pretty cool, wasn't it? Marty Fish coming on Control the Controllables Episode 150, we've been promising him for a while and boy, oh boy, did he deliver. So hope everyone enjoyed that. And as always, I've got Vicky next to me. Now, my first thing, Vicky, he's not really going to get Sergio Garcia on the show, is he? I thought you were going to say on the golf course in Soto. I was like, trying to keep you off there with them would be hard. Well, I've I've been dreaming about it. And actually, I want to get the copyright for this because... Running a golf stroke tennis event to see who's the number one golf stroke tennis player, I think is an unbelievable idea. So if there's anyone out there that's got a bit of backing, got knows about TV rights and all of these things, I actually think this potentially could be a goer. I can already hear the debate. Is it harder to transfer to tennis if you're a golfer or is it harder to be a tennis player moving over to golf, which is a more technical sport. We could debate that for the next 20 minutes alone. Um, 
Well, I thought that was such a powerful episode. Marty speaks so well, so candidly, um, so honestly. There's so many takeaways I have. What were your key two, three from that episode? He's from Minnesota, I think is is something when he said that it really resonated with me when he said Minnesota nice. You know, I like when people like me. And, and, I, and I think that would be a big, big thing, not just in the episode, actually, even in, in my discussions before, you know, I've been in touch with Marley for six months now and we've been talking on WhatsApp and just every interaction I've had with him, he is just a really sound dude. You know, there's not a... There's no airs, no graces. So I would say that is a massive, massive takeaway. I, I think take that then into his into his tennis. I think there's a few things here. I think we're all in a rush. We're all in a rush to become a tennis player. He was number seven in the world, yet at age 15, he was number 49 in Florida. Now, Florida is a state in the United States to those that don't know that. So it's not even a country, you know, it's a state within a country within a continent, within the world, you know, and he made it to number seven in the world. I think that was incredible. And I think then also, I think you picked up on this as well, Vicky, when we spoke about it, age 28, he said, I finally got it. Now, most people have packed their, their rackets away long before they turned 28. You know, this is a sport of resilience, of resistance, of perseverance and, and, and all of those things. And I think those were big things that I took from it as well. Yeah, we've talked about that before, haven't we? How many players are still going at 28 and how often the rewards actually can come from persevering with your career? You know, we just had Rohan Bapana on the show not so long ago talking about how he won his first Grand Slam in his 30s. I thought Mardi was very open about his whole attitude around his tennis and how it took him until 28 to realise like how important the physical side of things was, but not just realising that, but also putting the time, the hours, the effort and the energy into that to really turn his tennis around. Yeah, one, one of the big things I remember, my coach John Willis, a big shout out to John, who was, who was incredible. He told me this when I was 10, and let's say I was ranked 150 in, in the country at the time. He said, if you re- work really hard for the next 12 months, you'll overtake 20 players and 15 of them will stop. And now you're age 11, yeah, and you're ranked 115. Then the next year, you work really hard, you overtake another 20 and another 20 stop. You're now 75. And, and and I don't have to keep going on, but he said the same thing. And, and that is the sport of tennis. And I, and I think it's not just the sport of tennis. I think it's the, the life that we live. You know, you keep persevering. You keep doing your best every single day. You keep being Minnesota nice to people and, and you don't go too far wrong. Well, yeah, I mean, look, it helped him to world number seven. But he, he said, didn't he, how it changed his life since. He's now US Davis Cup captain. It's affected you know the quality of his life but the other key moment that I've been thinking about since listening to your chat with him was um, the impact of his wife on him Um, you know how he told about the moment when they were in the car on the way to the match in the US Open and he was really struggling and she turned to him and said that you know you don't actually have to play the match and how that would never even occurred to him and I think that opens up a massive debate, and and I don't think it's for for today's podcast. I think it's I think it's really important that that people like Marty have brought this to the, to people's attention because I think back back in the day it was just that suck it up, get on with it. That's that's how it was. And if we take 
an instance like this, this health issue that has come Marty's way, if he's been in a position where he's never been able to express his emotions and express how he feels, all that's doing there is that's building up, it's building up, it's building up, and that leads to to an injury, just like it would physically. You know, if you don't stretch, if you don't tension release, then then what will happen is there'll be a certain part of your body which will which will have an injury. And, and I don't see it any different, really, between physical injuries and mental injuries. You know, we all have to have ways of looking after our own, own welfare. We have to be able to express how we're feeling. Yes, we want to create tough athletes, you know, people that are able to have resilience. But at the same time, they have to be able to open up. And I just hope a story like Marty Fisher's story, and there's there's many that are starting to come out now, can really inspire the youngsters to to make them feel that they're able to talk they're able to be open about it and and i think arguably the best thing that that marty did say and he said a lot of amazing things is look this this isn't about mental health this is about health in general and i think the more that we think about the brain as a part of the body and that's injured and needs work on the the better and the less stigma that will be attached around these issues and like he says his story gives others hope you know he's inspiring people who are in a similar situation to him at the moment and and he said himself when he was going through it he had no one to look up to there was no one in a similar situation and you know people can now watch his documentary hear him talk on on podcasts like this and say you know what if marty fish can do it i can him telling his story is normalizing anxiety disorders it's normalizing mental health battles and you can still be successful 100 percent. and i think my last thing to say before we go into our exciting 150th episode giveaway here at soto tennis and control the controllables normalizing as a strategy in any walk of life is powerful I think if we if we feel we're not alone and someone else is feeling what we're feeling, all of a sudden that reduces the way that we, the anxiety and the stress and the difficulties that we have. And I've talked about it a lot on this podcast. It's like the pandemic. When the pandemic first hit, nobody could work. Not, nothing, nothing quite went the way that our normal life did. But all of a sudden, everyone was in the same boat. So it became normal. So I, I hope these stories go out far and wide. But I want to pass over to Vicky, who's going to give you a little bit on how to enter our big giveaway and we are giving away a full access training week at Soto Tennis Academy. It'll be a great opportunity to get you guys on the courts with all of our players at the academy and, and amazing coaches. So come on then Vicky, how how do we enter? How do we enter the big the big giveaway? Okay, so there's three steps. Uh, so we've put this in the show notes just so to make it really clear. So you need to follow ctc.podcast and Soto Tennis on Instagram. Uh, like a post on Instagram and tag three friends in the comments under the post. So like our accounts on Instagram, like a post on Instagram and tag three friends in the comments below. Um, you also get a bonus entry if you share one of our stories on Instagram. Are you telling me that, that there's people that are still listening to the very, very end of our conversation at the end of such an amazing guest that aren't already following us on Instagram? Come on. 
You know, these are the diehards that have made it all the way to the end. But a big thank you to you all. If you are still listening, I love the episode. I, I hope you did too. My next guest is Dan Smevhurst, who Dan was a was a bright young British player who, who got up to 200 in the world ATP. He's also being a big part of the coaching team for Joe Conta and is now working very closely with the next group of talent back across in Great Britain. And Dan said to me, thanks, mate, for putting me after Marty Fish. Uh, but I can assure you that every guest has their own special way, uh, their special messages, and, and Dan's no different. There's so many takeaways. He's He speaks incredibly well and is another fantastic guest. So look out for that one next week. More coming your way. But until next time, I'm Dan Kiernan, and we are Control the Controllables.